Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. My guest today is, for many people, the leader that Labour should have had instead of Ed Miliband in 2010 or maybe even Gordon Brown in 2008, a former Home Secretary and Health Secretary, a former Shadow Chancellor. He's still one of the Labour Party's best-liked figures, even though he stepped down as an MP in 2017. And the reason for that is that, unlike a lot of politicians, Alan Johnson has lived a life. Famously the son of a single mother, he was orphaned at 13 when his mother died and was then brought up by his older sister in very much ungentrified Battersea. He worked in Tesco, then he became a postman at the age of 18 and rose through the unions to lead the Union of Communication Workers in 1982 and then enter Parliament in 1997. It's all detailed in his acclaimed memoirs, This Boy, Please Mr Postman and The Long and Winding Road, as is his love of music. Famously the biggest mod in politics, Alan Johnson was the Paul Weller of Parliament. And we'll be talking about that a little bit later. He's even made a playlist for us, by the way. The link for that is in the show notes. Now he's doing something else that's new. He's written a thriller, The Late Train to Gypsy Hill, which is published on the 2nd of September. It's a contemporary spy story featuring dodgy Russians poisoning one another in hotels, oligarchs, thugs, fixers, iffy coppers, and other material that resonates with the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in 2006 when Alan Johnson was in the cabinet. He's here to talk about it and more. Alan Johnson, thanks for joining us in the bunker. How are you? Thanks, Andrew. Fine. We should have put your little... uh Peroration there on the cover of the book. It was uh, it was excellent. That, well, you know, I am a quality hype man. So the book, it is a proper page turner. I was gripped with a proper twist. What made you want to write a thriller? Well, I've always wanted to um, to write. The book is dedicated to my English teacher, Peter Carden, who is still alive. He's ninety. Doesn't remember a single thing about me, by the way. <laughs> has he, has he read this, by the way? Have you sent it to him? Yeah, I have. Yeah, he's a bit. Too old and frail to come down to London for the launch party, but um, I'm still in touch with him and his wife. Uh, and he used to encourage me to send off the drivel that I used to write, short stories and poems and all that. Uh, and, of course, I got the inevitable rejection slips, and Mr Carlin said, Alan, don't give up. Every great writer could paper their walls with rejection slips. And he said, try again when you're older. And uh, it was another 50 years later. <laughs> I tried again. What, what is it about the thriller that drew you to it? I'm told that you were a big Ian Fleming and George Simenon guy as a kid. Um, yeah, Fleming was a bit of a flash in a pan, but Simenon, I've sort of ploughed my way through most of Maygrave's 75 novels since. I read other stuff, and, you know, really the reason I'm writing a thriller is because I had this idea just standing on a station platform on the underground at about the time of Litvinenko, when it was said that, you know, it was a waitress that served the coffee, that's not quite accurate, actually. But mm. I think what would have happened if she served the coffee to the wrong person and the would-be poisoner became the poisoned? How would that go? And so the idea was swimming around. I was writing the memoirs. My publisher was keen to squeeze every ounce out of the <laughs> memoirs. I was keen to get onto fiction. To which a cynic would say, why don't you write your next party manifesto? But that would be a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you say, the book, uh, we kind of move from what seems to be a botched assassination attempt in the Savoy, where the wrong guy dies. And we go on this kind of journey through organised crime and, and, and even into corruption in the Met. The obvious question, which you kind of alluded to a moment ago, is how much of this is drawn from your own experience in, in cabinet, especially as Home Secretary? None whatsoever. Uh, apart from, you know, you know, the, the kind of ranks and the I was in charge of the M of MI5, but mm. I can't really put any of that on paper. It's Official Secrets Act for a start, so I can't talk about any of that. But you can allude to it, can't you? There's a ways of alluding to things. Yeah, and I can know the mechanics. Mm. You know, there's something in there about the Home Secretary meeting the uh, coming down to the basement of uh, to have a meeting with MI5 and the Met every week. Where well, that actually happens, not mm. there. 
happens somewhere else. So those kind of the mechanics of it. But for the rest, no, it's, it's, a, it's a work of imagination. And it's not based in particular on Litvinenko, although I'm told by a real expert on this. I'm not saying you're not, Andrew, but <laughs> who is a real nerd on the Litvinenko thing. And he said, oh, congratulations on that football match. You moved it to Chelsea so that Abramovich was involved. Apparently, Litvinenko was taken to a match Arsenal. Yes, he was. Of, yes. Yeah. Right. It's part of the. Pro- I didn't know it. I, didn't See, know I thought that. Was, I thought he's being clever here. He's really. He's. It's. Uh, he's getting as close to the line as he possibly can. Should keep me gob shut because when uh, <laughs> thought of as clever is. Uh, I'm ruining all that by saying I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about it at all, and I didn't. Who did you read as kind of uh, you know inspiration of 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 how to write a thriller? Thrillers are tightly wound machines. They are complicated assemblies of parts. It's a stretch to do this stuff. Did you did you kind of immerse yourself in other thriller writers not to be able to do this? No, oh. I, you know, a long spell of reading Agatha Christie. I've read books all my life, so I had a long spell of reading Agatha Christie, Marjorie Allingham, uh, Nagayo Marsh, all these great detective, the golden age of detective fiction. And more recently, I've read some Anne Cleves, uh, but. No, I I think it was just once the story started. If you can, if you can string a sentence together and you've got an idea and you've read a lot and you know the kind of books you like to read that engage you as a reader, I think you can have a crack. You should have a crack yourself, Andrew, if you haven't done already. Journalists aren't supposed to make things up. We get in trouble if we do that. <laughs> yeah. It's against the job description. London is this kind of haven for Russian money. Russian litigation, Russian general shadiness, that definitely grew under the new Labour government. And you write in the book, amongst the Russian criminal fraternity, London had become known as the world's laundromat, washing billions of pounds of dirty cash every year. In hindsight, was it wise for new Labour to be so kind of open to this influx of of money, particularly from Russia? Well, we'd have been a bit weird. I mean, it's still going on now in terms Mm -hmm. of, but it's it's a free society. People who'd come over with Money, you've got to remember, I mean, the main issue, if there's a political message at all, was the way Russia moved from, you know, a very centrally controlled society to under Yeltsin, just, you know, anything goes. Uh, and these people, uh, and Putin's Russia, although I don't mention him now, they were saying, there's a quote in there, we, we swallowed so much freedom, it almost choked us. That's the kind of post-1990 period. And these ex-KGB people who were, thinly disguised uh they changed the name of the kgb but not the not the personnel involved was to try to rein this back after yeltsin and putin was very much a part of that but for places like britain the fact that the berlin wall came down was a great move forward people were suddenly uh, taking part in free elections so it would have been pretty strange if we'd somehow allowed American money and French money and, uh, you know, Saudi Arabian money into London, but not Russian money. The fact that some of them, you know, pretty dodgy people, that's a matter for the security forces and the kind of job I used to do. But you can't just ban them because they're Russian and they've got money. It's not all oligarchs in the book. The core is this kind of everyman guy, Gary Nelson, who spots a woman on the train, same woman every day, and one morning she holds up her mirror and it's got help me written on it in lipstick and we're kind of off off into the plot. He's a working class guy. As a 60s guy, were you going for a bit of kind of modern day Harry Palmer here? Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I had this mental image. I mean, he's raised by a single mother and all that, so mm. there's a bit of a bit of me in that, I guess, but he's a world away from it. You know, I mean, I'm interested in astronomy. He's 
stuck on it. I'm not a great cricket nerd, he is. And, you know, I was uh, married with three kids by the age of 20, and he's 23 and never really had a proper relationship with a woman. So we're very different characters. But I wanted him to be that kind of decent working class kid who didn't particularly do well mm. in his A-levels. He got, uh, he got some bad results there. Wanted something more in his life, wanted to live a big life where, mm. where things were happening. So left Aylesbury, came to London, and like many people do, found it was just as boring as Aylesbury because he... <laughs> It really was happening to him. I'm not saying anything against Aylesbury, by the way. Aylesbury is a fine place, uh, but you know what I mean. So, you know, now he gets all the excitement and adventure. Yes. Possibly, as you said. And, you know, the effect that has on his life. Well, I'm writing a sequel to it now, but Gary's not in it, but the copper is. Oh, right. With a bit of luck, he won't have to appear in any more of your books because his life will be boring and quiet, which is what he's looking for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I want to ask you a bit about Labour and your life inside the Labour Party and, and kind of where you, where you see it now. Your election night broadside against John Lansman from Momentum on ITV was pretty much the only high point of a dismal night if you're a Labour supporter. You told him Corbyn couldn't lead the working class out of a paper bag. You told him to go back to your student politics. I mean, did you personally kind of take any sort of satisfaction out of being able to pronounce those last rights? I was just angry, mm. Andrew. It was nearly midnight. We'd lost... We lost Bolsover, Dennis Skinner's seat. We lost Bishop Auckland. We lost Grimsby. We lost Scunthorpe. We lost Lee in Lancashire. Uh, and and there was him, Landsman, who came into the studio just before we went on air, saying that it looks like we might win Putney. Oh, well, we might win Putney. London <laughs> South. Well, there's a step forward for the working classes, you know? So, I mean, you know, I, was, I was just angry. As I said in, in the introduction, a lot of people thought that you would have been a better leader of the Labour Party, that you could have led the Labour Party if you'd pushed your advantage in 2010. Uh, in the end, you stepped aside for, uh, to support David Miliband. Firstly, why? And secondly, do you, do you re regret it? No, because, and, you know, sometimes I feel guilty about saying this, Andrew, but I never wanted to be the leader. I did try to be deputy leader, by the way, mm -hmm. and that was a gloriously unsuccessful campaign. So this idea that I should be the leader, would I stand against Gordon Brown? He was dealing with the international crisis in financial services and leading the world, by the way, as yeah. Obama and many other people. I mean, he's had prizes from all over the world for the way he led us, stopped a, a recession becoming a depression a la 1930s. Would I have stood against Ed? They wanted me to stand against him three months before the likely general election, stab him in the back, walk across, pick up the crown. I mean, it might work in Shakespeare, but it doesn't work in politics. But I really didn't want to be the leader. And if you don't want to be a leader, and actually, Sam Corbyn, he never wanted to be a leader. And it showed, you know. But that raises two questions. One is, you might not have wanted to be the leader, but there is the question of taking one for the team. And also, no. Gordon Brown, you're absolutely right, did all those wonderful things, saved the world, but was not an election winner. And Labour needed an election winner, somebody relatable, that could get that working class vote and also the old sort of uh, lower middle class vote that uh, uh, the coalition that New Labour assembled. Couldn't you have been that guy a bit more, you know, more electable than Gordon Brown, who has an enormous qualities, but he wasn't an election winner? Well, the reason why I, I said I feel like apologising was for the very fact you just said, shouldn't you take one for the team? I felt, in the end, with so many people telling me this, I was somehow letting the, the party down. But once we'd lost the election in 2010, we were out of government after 13 years. It really was the time for 
someone fresh and new, not not me, associated with 97. You know, I was a trade union leader before that. I supported Tony Blair on Wars 4. So I was part of the history, really. And here was David Miliband. I mean, uh, absolutely, you know, one of the most talented politicians that's ever come from our ranks. And so pushing him forward, no one knew the soap opera that was going to come with David's brother standing against him. No one could have envisaged that. And I think and still think David would be the man, would have been the man to lead us in 2010. So I joined his campaign rather than ampering it by standing myself. How bad a place is Labour in now? I mean, Keir Starmer seems stuck in trench warfare with the remnants of the Corbyn left. They seem to have given up on wanting to govern. They just want to prosecute a civil war. Where do you see the party's position now? Oh, better than I imagined it could be. We were 26 points behind in the polls. Uh, You know, so uh, talk about picking up a difficult poison chalice. And the fact that it came back from that, I know there was a blip in December. At one stage, we were ahead. His personal ratings were better than any we've known since Tony Blair was a leader. And I think with his speech at conference, the first time he's ever been able to talk directly to anyone, by the way, Mm -hmm. other than Zoom and the way we're talking now, I think you'll see things start to really swing into, into place. I couldn't have imagined we would be this better off now than we you know, I, I can only imagine that we would be like this. I thought once Corbyn went, we were doomed to just be a, you know, a kind of, uh, once we lost the Islington correspondent of the Morning Star, I thought there'd been a whole succession of people who would follow him in. And we were doomed to be the cult that, you know, Landsman wanted us to be. The lesson from the last general election for a lot of people was uh, that apparently Labour doesn't get the working class anymore and Boris Johnson does that Boris Johnson has some kind of, somehow kind of intuited something in the British working class that's enabled him to assemble a coalition. Do you think that's true? And do you think that Labour focusing on the working class really makes sense anymore in an age of like call centres and zero-hours contracts when you, know, you don't have that old kind of factory-gate coalition that you used to have? Well, we're about two things, the eradication of poverty and greater equality. And those two things by themselves suggest that people who are less advantaged in the world would be the working class, would Mm -hmm. be natural territory. I don't buy the fact, I mean, Johnson's, this was all about Brexit, wasn't it? It was about Brexit and it was about, you know, the follow-on from that with Boris Johnson, you know, getting Brexit done. That was a big, and our position, our ridiculous position, that we would go back, we would renegotiate the deal again and then we'd put it to another referendum. I mean... Uh, I don't think anyone was uh, attracted to that notion. Do you think that uh, Brexit was a lost cause then, even though many of us spent a lot of time agitating for a people's vote, agitating for a, you know, to look at it again, uh, agitating for you know a real proper deconstruction of the deal? Was it was it done and dusted when the result came through? Yes, it was, Andrew. I led the Labour campaign, which was quite successful, by the way. We got 65% of Labour supporters, not members, voting to remain. Cameron only got 35% of his own supporters, Tory support. He called the referendum. He was the Prime Minister. He wanted us to remain in, and he only managed to get 35% of Conservative supporters. So it was very much Cameron's folly, uh, that. But once it was done, it was done. What we should have been doing, we should have accepted Theresa May's deal. We should have voted for it because it was the softest possible Brexit. It stopped the problems in Northern Ireland. It kept us in part of lots of things, including the Erasmus 
scheme, very important in higher education, which is why, you know, the Farages of this world were saying it was, you know, Brexit in name only. Well, surely that's what we must have wanted. And also it stopped free movement. And that was the big issue uh, in many working class communities where they did feel that free movement meant that anyone could, it wasn't controlled anymore from 27 European Union countries. And they had a point there. Net migration was the highest level ever known under Cameron, who said he'd get it down to the tens of thousands. So Theresa May's deal was sellable to the people who voted for Brexit. And I think sellable to those of us who voted to remain, unless we thought, and you just alluded to it, that there was some magic solution. You know, a second referendum would have produced a different result. It wouldn't. It would have produced an even bigger result because many people who voted to remain would be offended at the fact they were being asked a second time when we all made it plain, me leading the Labour campaign as well. This is a, when if you whichever way you vote is the way it's going to happen. You know, you vote to leave, we leave. So I think that was a that was a bad mistake not to follow, uh, not to support Theresa May's deal. Alan, one one reason people are quite fond of you is that they recognise that you are a bit like them. You have done real jobs. You've had a real life. You, your existence wasn't entirely inside Parliament. Do you think the Labour Party needs to stop, you know, recruiting MPs from the world of unions and think tanks and spads? And does it need more postmen? Does it need more people who've done actual jobs? Well, I think politics in general. You know, no one should go into it until they've done. You know, got a bit of experience under their belt. I know that Pitt, the younger, was prime minister at 24, but that's when you dropped dead at 35. You know, <laughs> so I just think there was a whole period epitomised by the three main party leaders, Ed Miliband at the time, David Cameron, and Nick Clegg. They'd all come through this same process, been a spad, you know, uh, a constituency then's found for them, and they end up as you know, looking like they want to run the country, running the country in Cameron's point. So I think most people felt that was that was bad. But I think we've all reacted to it. I mean, there is another postman in the House of Commons now. He's on the Tory benches. A Conservative postman, who would ever have thought of such a thing? I went to talk to him just to find out whether some people say they were, oh, I was a postman, I was a postman. Yeah. They did two weeks on the Christmas post as a student, you know, that's not the yeah. same thing been a postman for 10, 15 years, elected in Cornwall for the Tories. So I think they're all looking, uh, political parties now, and they're in charge of this process, are looking to, you know, for people to come in on their benches who have had a bit of experience of life. But we've created a situation now where, no disrespect, but you've got to be a bit touched to want to be in politics at all, don't you, these days? Because it's such a brutal world and everything that you do will be scrutinised and every tweet you've ever done and everything you've ever said will be dissected. We've created a world where the only people who want to be politicians are spads and people who work in trade unions and people who work in think tanks. Haven't we done it to ourselves? Well, I think there's one point in that, that you know many people grow up thinking that they never stand a chance of being an MP. That's that's part of the same, you know, many people would, wouldn't dream of thinking they could go to university. Uh, they None of their parents did, none of their friends did, no one they know did. And that's kind of one of the things you have to break down in society in general. Apart from that, it's a fabulous job. I mean, never mind about all this whinging and moaning about it. <laughs> of course there is uh, scrutiny. And because there are more ways now to scrutinise because of social media, etc., you'll be subject to that scrutiny. But look at the, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who apply and, you know, never get through the the system to, to becoming candidates. The people who have 
you know, their bitter regret is they never managed to be a candidate. I've known people who've gone and stood in five or six seats, moved their family to a place where they think the MP is about to pop his clogs so they've got a chance of being selected. So, no, and it's, a you know, just a, a privilege uh, and much better paid than it used to be. Before you go, you've very kindly made us a playlist, which is fantastic. Hold yeah. on, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave in the Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett. The Kids Are All Right by The Who. Is this a case of once a mod, always a mod, Alan? Yes. Well, you wanted a particular <laughs> mod. Yes. Angle on I could have given you a lot of stuff, but I've yeah. given you a mod angle, not particularly the music that I love, although The Kids Are All Right by The Who, off their first album. Uh, you know, they never released it as a single, but it is a proper mod song mm. by a proper mod band. They're they work with the high numbers and high numbers is a mod slang as is faces. Small faces were a mod band. So I've done that and put in a few recent songs that I think would be mod songs. If only the mods were still around. Yeah. So you've got in this city by field music. What is it that you like about them in particular? I like this album. I mean, they've been around for a while and they, you know, they kind of morph into different. I like that about them as well. You never yeah. know what you can get with field music. This latest album is very commercial in my view and because it's so kind of pared down reminds me a bit of those original kind of mod bands like the who like the small faces and the tunes are amazing uh and the the harmonies are incredible now what the listeners can't see is that we can see your back room which has two guitars in it uh and a whole load of other music all right i hope the last couple have been nick oh three three Three. he's just moved out the way is the third one you know music obviously plays a huge role in your life and i'm always suspicious of people who don't like music did you have gig mates in the commons i mean we know that stella creasy famously likes the wedding present damien green is a fan of half man half biscuit did you have music contacts within the commons uh, the Eagle Sisters, uh, they were fans of Elvis Costello. And Maria had Elvis Costello's mum lived in her constituency on the Wirral, mm. where he used to live. Uh, Jeff Hoon. Really? <laughs> you know? Defence. Uh, Jeff, big, very big on his uh, on music. But not many, not many others that I can think about. Um, Tony, of course, Tony Blair was very much into Foo Fighters. Was he, he now? Top volume and Gordon Brown used to have to knock on the wall to turn it, but turn it down from next door. And number <laughs> yeah, and and fiddled about on his Fender Tele. I've got a Fender Telecaster, uh, but yeah. I think Tony had a Stratocaster. Um, actually, I think that was just an ugly rumor. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! Oh God Almighty! I think that's the that's the place to end. <laughs> well, just before I go, I want to ask you one last thing. Gordon got into terrible trouble when he sort of told the world that the Arctic Monkeys were his current favourite band. Nobody really believed it because it wasn't very authentic to Gordon, was it? You can't really see him, you know. Get... He says he never said it, by the way. Oh, okay, but well, he... it's, well, there we go. So it, it was it was put out, wasn't it? Possibly by an, yeah. an ill-advised press officer. Should politicians in senior positions like that just admit that, like, music is not for them? They're busy dealing with the grand worldwide issues and not pretend to be really into Stormzy, for instance. You're absolutely right. I went to an event, by the way, with a load of party members and the MP, who I won't name, was one of these people trying to sound down because I was a big fan of Super Furry Animals. This MP had heard all about Gordon uh, and the Arctic Monkeys and he introduced me as a big fan of the Super Furry Monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) So he got his fans mixed up and that is, you know, an abject lesson, an object lesson. It's an object lesson and an abject lesson. And an abject lesson as well, yes. Alan, just before we go, now that everything's reopening, what gig are you looking forward to going to next? John Grant in Nottingham. Oh, right. He's great, isn't he? It's amazing, amazing. I, I, I followed him when he was with the Tsars. 
so I, that is, I think, the week after my book's published. Uh, so I hope I make it there. There's not too many gigs to do with the book. There you go. Well, Alan, thanks for joining us from your rock and roll secret room. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> the Late Train to Gypsy Hill is published on the 2nd of September by Wildfire. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, why not spread the word? We're asking all regular listeners to forward the link to the show to three friends who might like the bunker and tell us what they think on Twitter. So get on it right now. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>